Uh, like I said earlier, uh, today's the kickoff to a brand new series. And uh, if you're new around here or um, it's been a while since you really thought about it, a series is a little bit like a movie. And, and today really is gonna be kind of the introduction to the movie. So I say that to say, please, if you can be here for weeks two, three, and four, uh, because today is just a setup. It's just an introduction. It's just a preview uh, of what we're gonna talk about in the next few weeks, which is really, really, really important. Uh, that said, uh, recently I got introduced to a brand new phrase. It may not be new to you, and uh, but it was new to me because when I saw the phrase, uh, I wasn't familiar with it and I, I don't recall ever having heard it. Um, and it, it was the term planned obsolescence. And uh, and if you don't know what that is, you can you can think about it a little bit and, and maybe put the words together and come up with you know a, a decently close working definition. But there's a very specific definition to this term planned obsolescence. And, and, and here's, here's the definition. Planned obsolescence is a strategy of deliberately ensuring that the current version of a given product will become out of date or useless within a known time period in a move to bolster and secure demand. In other words, there are products that you have to buy and that I have to buy. There are products that we depend on that are part of our everyday life, our everyday existence. There are products that are actually designed not to last. They are intentionally built not to last. Um, example being a light bulb. When you buy one light bulb, you don't ever assume this is the last light bulb I will ever have to buy for this particular lamp or this particular fixture. And I don't care what those liars say about five years of life on them. <laughs> Flip on that. That's the biggest con I've ever heard in my life. Five years? Have you ever gotten five years out of a bulb? If you have, I don't even want to see you because you walk in favor that I don't know. Uh, so, you know, there's light bulbs, you know, five years of life. And, you know, so we buy light bulbs, buy them, buy them, buy them, buy them. Uh, razors? Razors, you know, not even just disposable plastic razors, but you know, even if you've got the nice metal holder, even the one that vibrates, which is particularly nice, and you put the, you know, the new little blades on there, a couple of weeks. If your wife confiscates your razors from time to time, like some wives I know, it, it like shortens the life by, I mean, more than double. It's like you just bought this, and two weeks later, it's like. Oh my God, this, 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 this is terrible. And so you gotta go again and drop another 15 bucks, 20 bucks, 25 bucks. Batteries, you know, uh, no such thing as keeps ticking. No, no such thing as a battery which keeps going. Batteries, you know, they die and we expect it. So we buy them and then we have to buy them again. Cell phones, 50% of the cell phones bought in this country last year uh, wasn't because the first time, you know, purchasers, it, it was upgrades. So, you know, uh, they get outdated, they're obsolete, you know, there's all these new things that come out. And so people are just rebuying cell phones. Toothbrushes, you know, after a while, it's just not good to use that same toothbrush anymore. Uh, if people are backing up from you when they talk to you, it is time to upgrade your toothbrush. Golf balls. Some of you know how much you need to replace those, some more than others, but you know, it's a temporary thing. They don't, they don't last forever. Clothing, certain shoes, and it just goes on and on and on. These things are not built to last, but then there are some products that are built to last. Some products which are meant to endure, uh, perhaps last a lifetime and even beyond a lifetime. Um, a cast iron skillet, Everybody needs a good cast iron skillet. It'll last a lifetime. Nothing better to sear up that New York strip or that ribeye. God bless. Help us, Jesus. I mean, there's nothing better than getting a good black sear on that steak, you know, in the cast iron. I mean, heat it up to 500 degrees for 20 minutes. Put it on the, I mean, it's amazing. And that sucker will last forever. It, it will be left behind when Jesus comes back. I mean, that cast iron skillet is built to last. A, a great a great kitchen knife, I'm talking about a good one. I'm talking about a well-engineered kitchen knife that should last a lifetime. Uh, not a watch, but a timepiece. You know, there's a difference between a watch and a timepiece, but a timepiece, an exquisite timepiece can, can last, you know, not only one lifetime, but, but another lifetime. Uh, a fine leather bag uh, to carry while you're traveling, uh, which I just think, even if you don't put anything in it, it just looks good to carry a nice leather bag. Uh, I, I'm, not that I've ever done that, uh, but I mean, just to, just to carry a leather bag because, man, and the older that it gets, 
It's like some of you ladies, the older it gets, the better looking it becomes. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, a good leather bag, you know, a Stanley insulated thermos that our grandpas had. Uh, or for those of us who are Gen Xers, uh, you'll remember this because I think we were one of the first generations where this came about, the Jansport backpack. They're like cockroaches. You can't, you can't destroy one of those. They actually have a lifetime guarantee. So there's things that are built to last a lifetime. They're built to last. Everybody just say this together. You ready? Let's go. Built to last. Now, some products are built to last. And um, sadly and tragically, uh, even some companies um, that create products, uh, not all of those companies um, are built to last. Some of them don't last forever. Some of them don't last very long. Um, there are companies uh, in the American economy, which once stood tall, um, that commanded, I mean, commanded their sector of the market. Yet at a certain point, they went from the top to just falling off into irrelevancy. Uh, see how many of y'all remember this? You remember Blockbuster? How, some of y'all have no idea. Uh, how many has been inside a Blockbuster store before? Okay, like, okay. Now, let me, let me talk to some of you. Once upon a time, there was not an internet. And, and once upon a time, if you wanted to watch a motion picture movie that had been on at the cinema, you had to get in a car, drive to a store, go in, peruse the shelves, and then get a tape, a tape, this kind of this, I don't know. But anyway, you, you would take it home and then you would put it in a machine and you would press play and then you would watch it. I mean, it was amazing. And, and once upon a time, Blockbuster had thousands of stores around the world. Thousands of stores around the world. I mean, they, they were the big dog in town, but they ignored what was happening around them. There was a transition taking place towards digital media and digital formats. There was this company called Netflix, which began to you know, change its, you know, its model, its strategy. And because of it, it disrupted the whole, the whole rental industry, the whole movie industry. And all of a sudden, because Blockbuster decided, you know, we're not gonna change, uh, we're, we're gonna stay in this direction. Um, Blockbuster was eventually forced to file bankruptcy and they became irrelevant. And now they're just an icon of a day gone by. Here's another one, Kodak. Now, once upon a time, this particular company was the dominant force when it came to film and camera. If you had film, uh, again, I don't have time to tell you what film is, but if you had film and you had a camera and it wasn't your phone, if you had an actual camera, imagine how clunky that was back in the day. You know, you had your camera on, if it was a camera, if it was film, it was probably Kodak. And they had the market cornered. But they were so committed to their strategy and they got so comfortable that they, they just ignored the digital revolution that was taking place. They ignored the fact that cameras were showing up on phones that were just as good as the cameras that they were producing. And because of it, because they refused to change and pivot and you know, alter their course, they filed for bankruptcy in 2012. Then there's Blackberry. Blackberry. How many, how many of y'all had a Blackberry before? All right. Okay. I don't, what's wrong with you people? Um, they, they were regarded as the pioneer of the smartphone. At their peak, they had 50% of the U.S. market share. They had 20% of the global market share. I mean, we're talking about a massive company, but they were slow to change. They, they failed to embrace new technology. They were so committed to that little push keyboard that they refused to relinquish you know, the touchscreen technology. They refused to change the way that they thought about the apps and app stores and developers and designers. And because of it, they bankrupted themselves and they became irrelevant. And then, you know, last one, Sears. Once upon a time, retail powerhouse. Department stores, I mean, you could just go to Sears and just about get anything you wanted to get. And then they had the catalogs and the Christmas catalog being like the bomb. I mean, as a kid, there was nothing better than the Sears Christmas catalog, but they refused to adapt. They refused to change. They said, everything's going amazing. How could things go wrong? How could things go south? We got all these department stores. We got this huge catalog, but they refused to pay attention to what was happening. And this transition, which was taking place to online shopping, and they failed to pay attention to this company that nobody's heard of called Amazon and how they decided to do the model entirely different. 
And so they didn't last. And you say, well, why didn't they last? Why didn't these companies last? Because they refused to change. They refused to pivot. They refused to shift. They failed to innovate. They failed to invest in the next, you know, the next big thing. They refused to invest in the future. And then you put that with a loss of focus or a loss of vigilance and, and perhaps even a good dose of overconfidence. They were thrown into irrelevancy. Even though they didn't want to be irrelevant, they were made irrelevant. And ultimately, they became failures when the last thing that they wanted to become was a failure. So they did everything that they shouldn't have done. And it led to some really, really bad outcomes. If we could talk to them today, what would they say? Probably through a tone of regret, they said, they would say, hey, we should have stayed focused. We should have kept paying attention to how the world was changing. We, we should have watched the transitions happening around us. We should have remained vigilant. We should have remained passionate. And we should have been willing to do whatever it took to hold off irrelevance and failure in our line of work. I think that's what they would say to us. And that brings me to us. That brings me to, to all of us who call the Creek Church home or the Creek Church our church. And, and it brings me to a story, a story I've told lots of times, but I, I want to tell a little bit different today. But it's an important story because of what we're going to talk about in the weeks to come. And for as many as there may be of you who've been around and heard this story, there are many of you who haven't. Uh, some of you in Somerset and Williamsburg and Bell County. But what makes me wanna to talk to all of us today in light of what I just got through talking about is something that goes back to about the year 2004. And back in 2004, 2005, uh, something began to happen uh, in this church. Uh, the winds of change uh, were blowing and there was a pivot uh, there was a shift taking place. And, and the landscape of status quo, the landscape of status quo was being uprooted. And, and there was this growing, healthy discontent for how things were and how things had been. And all of a sudden there was this brand new vision that was emerging concerning what could be and what should be. And back in 2004 and 2005, it was a time of rethinking some things. It was a time of refocusing on some things. And it was a time of reorganizing around some things. It was a time of reorganizing, refocusing, and rethinking about what matters most. And when this church decided to reorganize around what mattered most, uh, what happened next was nothing short of an exodus. Not of people leaving the church, but rather an exodus of people from within the church, leaving behind religious tradition, legalism, religious mindsets that had limited progress, that had clouded vision, that had made things you know, more difficult and complicated than they had to be. And back in 2004 and 2005, perspectives began to evolve. And that's a good thing. When our perspectives evolve, if you hold the same perspective that you had five years ago or 10 years ago, you're probably not paying attention and you're probably not thinking. Perspectives began to evolve, yet convictions, convictions remained strong. Personal preferences were renounced. People said, you know, it doesn't have to be my way anymore. It doesn't have to be our way anymore. We're open. And when people became open and personal preferences were renounced, excitement began surging. Momentum was palpable and a new chapter was being unfolded and a better story was being written. A new era had begun. And some of you were there for it. And, and some of you got there in the early days of it. And some of you have stepped into it somewhere along the way. But once upon a time, once upon a time, this church decided it no longer wanted to just have church or play church. It wanted to be the church. And there was a difference in just having church and playing church. There was a difference between that and being the church. Back then, back in 2004, back in 2005, in those days, there was a decision. There was a conscious, intentional decision to make the main thing the main thing and then to keep it the main thing. There was a commitment that was made. There was a collective commitment that was made that what is most important to God, we want it to become most important to us. Whatever the most important thing to God, we want it to be the most important thing here. And the result, the result was that the church, 
the church started moving in the direction of people far from God. And anytime you get the people of God moving in the direction of people far from God, that's what sparks a movement of God. That's what happened. And that's what the story is. This decision to be the church, and you just hear that and you're thinking, wow, you know, that's good, that's good, I've heard this, and maybe I've not heard this, but it sounds good. But when you decide to be the church, you gotta know, that's not an easy decision to make. It's not an inexpensive decision to make. It's not a convenient decision to make. But a group of people said, hey, we're willing to do hard things because we believe it's going to be worth it. If it's inconvenient, there was a group of people who said, bring it on. If it's expensive, there was a group of people who said, bring it on. If it's gonna cost us time, effort, tears, hey, bring it on. If it causes other people to misunderstand or misrepresent us, bring it on. If it means giving up some things that we really like and we really prefer, well then bring that on too. So you know what we did? We put up screens and we added a band and then we turned down the lights and we turned up the music. And in time, we even added fog, not because it was holy, but just because it was cool. And it looked good. And we read in Exodus one time that there was some smoke on a mountain and we thought, works for us. <laughs> so in time, we were like, man, this is good. So what did we do? We added bigger screens. We bought louder speakers. And, and we did our very best all along the way to make the message clear and compelling. Clear and compelling that when anybody showed up despite their, their pre-references of Bible or how much Bible they knew or didn't know or their you know, preconceived you know, opinions of faith that when they showed up, at least they would understand what was being said and at least they would leave saying, well, I'll tell you, that wasn't boring. And you know what? We did all of those things and everybody was happy about it. Mm, not really. <laughs> there was a few that decided we can't do this and we planted them in other churches, <laughs> sent them out as missionaries. We've done that with a few scores of people over the years. We did that with a nice group post COVID and hey, that's good. We're, we're all for sending missionaries out. And, and so some people decided we can't, we won't. So they left and, and then, but there were more people from without which really seemed to be disapproving of, of the whole thing because it didn't look a certain way and it didn't sound a certain way. They're, they're, believe it or not, you're not even gonna believe, yeah, you'll believe this if you have Twitter. Some churches even openly expressed their, excuse me, X. If, 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 and some of you are like, what just happened? Okay, forget it. There, there were some people who said, you know what? They even called us out by, by name. Churches. And, and they, they looked and they said, there's people going there that don't like church. So the reasoning was, though they didn't say this, the reasoning was, if they're going to church and liking that church, then that's no church that's done right. Because when you do church right, and you do church the way it's supposed to be, only the super right like it. And the super right tend to be the super old because they don't have energy for anything else. It's easy to be sanctified when you ain't got energy to sin. Write that in your Bible. All right? Some of us are struggling. We got too much darn energy. Just wait. You're gonna find paradise one day. And there's gonna be a thought cross your mind and it's gonna be sin. And you're gonna be like, I ain't even got, I don't have the energy. And you're just gonna stay where you are. Hey, it's good. So only the super right and the super old liked it because hey, when you do church right, hey, Nobody else typically tends to like it. Preachers got up, called me by name, called our church by name. They, they would speak to the whole church and say, hey, I just wanna let you know, I wanna warn you, they don't believe the Bible. And I'm like, but we do believe the Bible, we do believe the Bible. And we don't, they don't believe the Bible, it's just a show. It's a Vegas show, it's a Vegas act. And I'm like, listen, I've been to Vegas. We're, it is not a Vegas act. It might be a show, I could spot you that. Sometimes it's a show, but it's not Vegas, I'll tell you that. And they would just, you know, they just let anybody attend there, which was the one that always got me. I'm like, what do you want us to do? And they'd say, there's, it's shallow, there's no depth to it. They're soft on sin, they're soft on, man, if I've heard that once, if I had a dollar for every time I've heard that, 
man, we would do some really big things. Uh, it's like they're soft on sin. They never talk about sin. You know, they, they just, you know, it's just, it's just a country club. It's just a social club. It's just an entertainment gathering. And then I thought, you know, it used to bother me and, and, and I, I would just get all upset and I'd want to defend me and defend you and defend us. But then I realized these are basically all the same thing that the Pharisees said about Jesus. So then I kind of got okay with it. And then my whole paradigm for ministry, you know, then I thought, okay, if we're never, you know, if we're ever at a place where we're not ticking off religious people, then we just need to stop what we're doing and figure out something else to do. Because if we're not ticking off the religious people, we're not doing something right. So, um, yeah. Three of you that influence seven more. I appreciate it. It's great. Super. And so they would say these things. And, but the thing that I heard more than anything else back in, in the early days uh, of, of our church, 2004, five, probably six, seven even, uh, I heard this over and over. Maybe you heard it. It won't last. It won't last. I'll tell you. You heard about what's happening out there in Hong Kong? Oh yeah, I've heard it won't last. Same thing happened over there. Remember that about two years ago? Revival, they're down to 20. They said, it'll fizzle, the shine will wear off, the glitter won't last, it's the flavor of the month. It's just, it's for the cool kids and the cool kids will get bored and they'll move on. Give it a few weeks, give it a few months and you'll see it won't last. But you know what? People kept coming to that little brick church in the middle of nowhere and people just kept on coming to that remodeled gym and people just kept on coming back to the community center and people came on back to this building People who were beaten up and bruised by religion. They walked through the doors of this church. People showed up at this church who had been mistreated by Christians and by churches in the name of Jesus, in the name of truth, in the name of holy and righteous living. And they showed up at this church and they'd been bruised and beaten and mistreated because of their label, because of their past, because of their habits, because of their lifestyle, because of their struggle. And when they really had no good reason to, they showed up and many of them showed up to this church to give the church one last chance, one last shot, because I've been there and I've done that. And I've been there and I've done that. And I've done this merry-go-round before and I'm tired of being judged and I'm tired of being you know, misread and misrepresented. And I'm tired of all the assumptions because of how I look or how I dress or how I've lived. And they showed up to give church one more try. And you know what they found? They found acceptance, not rejection. They found truth and not lies to make themselves feel better about themselves. They found grace, not judgment. And they found friends and a family, not enemies. And then those, maybe some of you, who were tired of playing church and having church in a dead church, you showed up and said, hey, we wanna help. We wanna help. We see what's happening and we want in on it and we wanna help. We see people showing up thirsty. People are showing up with something missing in their life and they're looking for something to be a part of, something that's bigger than themselves, and they're finding it. They're finding life. They're finding a reason for hope. They're finding a reason for joy. They're finding a reason for peace. They're finding purpose and meaning for their life. And for the first time, some of them feel like faith is for them and church is for them. It wasn't very religious. It wasn't very churchy. It wasn't stuffy. It, it, it was like a breath of fresh air. It was like a cool cup of water for a thirsty soul. And those who came invited others to come. And what started with a few people in one little brick church has now grown to literally thousands spread over four different churches. Now I want you to think about this. Since 2005, since 2005, we have as a church, we have averaged baptizing about two people a week for eight, years. Now just think about that. Now, my math may be wrong, and some of you live to correct me, so I, if I'm wrong, I'm sure I will hear it. I think there's about 930 plus Sundays over the course of 18 years. And, and if we took all the baptisms that's happened here at the Creek, London, Somerset, Williamsburg, Bell County, and we spread those out, 
We would have seen multiple people almost baptized every single week, at least one person baptized every single week for 18 years. That's absolutely amazing. That's absolutely phenomenal. And so 18 years later, here we are. And as far as I'm concerned, and hopefully as far as you're concerned, we're just getting started. So for all the naysayers, for all the haters, to which the real great thing and the ironic thing is some of you are now here. <laughs> it didn't fizzle out and it's not fizzling out and it won't fizzle out. Has it all been smooth sailing? No. Has it been without issues? No. Has it been done perfectly? No. Has it been messy? Yes. At times, has it been frustrating and exhausting? Yes. Has there been some drama sprinkled in along the way? Yes. But it hasn't failed and it's not failing and it won't fail. Not because I said so. And it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with something that Jesus said. I believe that it won't fail. I believe it won't fizzle out. I believe we're just getting started. Not because that's my own personal belief, though it is, but it's because of something that Jesus said. One day, Jesus took his disciples on a field trip to a cave because everybody likes a good field trip to a cave. And this particular cave was about 150 miles north of Jerusalem. And in those days, there was a group of people who believed that this particular cave was the birthplace of Pan. Uh, from Greek mythology, half beast, half God. Uh, he was associated with, you know, unrestrained pleasure, lust, sex, um, and, and the worship of Pan. You know, I'm not even going to talk about it in, in, in the company that we have. But <clears throat> there was just all kinds of just this pagan worship that centered around him. And, and the cave that some of the people uh, north of Jerusalem believed that Pan was born in, uh, they also believe was the gateway to the realm of the dead. Uh, here's a picture of it from one of our trips to Israel. And this, this was the cave that some believed that Pan had been born in. This was the cave that some believed was the gateway to the underworld. And so for generations, uh, this region, this city had been a hot spot for pagan worship, pagan belief, pagan behavior. It went all the way back to the Old Testament to a king by the name of Jeroboam. And for 900 years, this particular region of Israel had all been connected and tied up in paganism and pagan belief and, and Greek mythology and, and Roman God and goddesses and, and the worship of and all of that. Then around the year 20 BC, around the year 20 BC, Augustus Caesar uh, gifted this region and this city uh, to King Herod, Herod the Great. Herod built a temple there in honor of the emperor who gave him the gift of the region and that city. After Herod died, uh, his son Philip inherited this particular area. And Philip renamed it in AD 14, he renamed it Caesarea Philippi. He named it after Caesar to give Caesar his credit and then he named it after himself, Caesarea Philippi. And at that time it was a bustling city and this is what a lot of scholars believe that it looked like. There's the cave and there was a temple there. Uh, there was another pagan temple there and there were all these courtyards and different areas for pagan sacrifice and, and all the things. And this is what it looked like. And this is the place where Jesus took his disciples. He's trying to get away from the pressure in Jerusalem of the religious establishment. And so he takes them there on this field trip and he asks these disciples of his who are inconsistent, inattentive, dysfunctional, stubborn, at times self-centered, you know, a lot like us. He looks at them and he asks them a question. And he says, you know, who do people say that the son of man is? Who do people say that the son of man is? Now, son of man, when I was growing up in church and I would hear son of man, I, I always thought it was just to remind us that Jesus was not only God, but Jesus was human. He's fully God, fully human. And, and though that is part of it, it, it's really not the point of the title son of man. When Jesus uses the term son of man, he reaches back to the Old Testament book of Daniel. And in the pantheon of all of these pagan gods and in the shadow of all these temples and all of this ideology and all of this behavior, Jesus reaches back to the book of Daniel to the one that Daniel spoke of, whom he called son of man, who would be the one that God would give divine authority and dominion to over all the nations of the world. This son of man would be God's final king, God's final sovereign, 
who would one day rule over the nations and bring about the final judgment of the world. So when Jesus says, hey, tell me who people say I, the son of man, am. Jesus was claiming to be the one that Daniel spoke of. He is God's final king, God's final sovereign, the one who will bring final judgment on the nations at the end of time. And so Jesus said, who do people say the son of man is? And so they go on and they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus said, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And then Simon Peter, some of this is familiar, but I, I want you to just zone in as much as you can and hear it for the first time. Simon Peter answered and said, you, you are the Messiah. You are King. You are Christ. You're the anointed one. You're the prophesied one. You're the one that Daniel was talking about. You're the one that Isaiah was speaking about. You're the one that Moses pointed to. You're the one that David spoke of. You are the one the Old Testament scriptures pointed to. You are Messiah. You are King. You are Lord. You're the one with all dominion. You're the one who's all sovereign. You're the one who will judge the nations one day, Jesus. You are Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, okay, Peter, let me tell you, nobody taught you that. My father in heaven revealed that to you. And then Jesus said these words, some of the most important words that Jesus said in the New Testament. He said, on this rock, I will build my, everybody talk to me, what's that word? Church. I will build my church and the gates of Hades, the gates of death will not overcome it. Now, this was Jesus prophesying. This was Jesus making a prediction. And this prediction of Jesus, it, 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 was, it was permeating with promise because when Jesus prophesied the church or predicted the church, it's really important to remember that Jesus predicted a people and not a place. The church is not a place. The church isn't a building. It never has been, it isn't, it never will be. The church isn't a building. The church isn't an address. The church isn't a denomination. The church isn't a set of doctrines. The church isn't a set of beliefs. The church is not a set of creeds. The church is not a set of traditions. It's not a set of behaviors. That's not what the church is. The church is a group of people who believe that Jesus Jesus is Messiah, that Jesus is Christ, that Jesus is King, that he is the son of the living God, that he's the one who died, he was the one who was buried, he was the one who was raised from the dead. That's the church, it's a group of people who believe that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for me, became sin for you, so that we could be right with God. Uh, the church is a group of people who believe that Jesus is God's eternal proof of God's love for us and for the world. It's a group of people who believe that one day, the final king, the one who died and was buried and was raised from the dead and the one who ascended back to God will one day come again and when he comes again, he will make everything right. He will bring about a resurrection of the dead and a judgment to the nations. And it's a group of people who believe, have always believed. The church is a group of people who believe that the best is yet to come. And Jesus in this particular verse, Jesus in this particular promise, he promised me and promised you and promised us and promised the world that nothing would ever stop the church. Nothing could ever thwart the mission of the church because Jesus said, I am building my church. And I think Jesus would say it this way, I'm building it to last. I'm building it to last for everyone and anyone, no matter who, no matter what, who will come in and just believe. So to be part of the church, you don't have to be perfect, no one is. You don't have to be good and it may shock you, no one is. You can have struggles and be a part of the church. You can be inconsistent and be part of the church. You can fail repeatedly and be part of the church. You can doubt and be part of the church. You can have serious questions about God and about life and about sin and about all kinds of things and still be part of the church. You can be misunderstood. You can wear a particular label. You, you can have all kinds of things be true about you. And you can be part of the church if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, that he died for your sins, he was buried, he was raised from the dead. Not me, I don't get to decide who's in, but Jesus said, if you believe that, you're in. 
If you have faith that Jesus is who he says he is, and that what he did on the cross in his resurrection, it has cosmic implications, not only for you, but for all the world. If you believe that, he says you're a part of the church. So Jesus, he didn't predict a building. Jesus did not predict 75 Capitol Drive. He didn't predict Somerset. He didn't predict Williamsburg. He didn't predict Middlesbrough, where we're all meeting at. He didn't. He predicted a people, a congregation, a gathering of people, people like you, people like me, people like us, a movement of people who believe that Jesus is King, that Jesus is Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, when the church officially launched on the day of Pentecost, uh, the, church, the church would always meet together. Uh, and, and when believers come together, that's the church. When, when believers assemble together, that's a picture of the church. And so from the very beginning, the church has always been meeting together. We met in the temple, we met, met in homes. Later on, we would meet wherever, wherever the church could meet, forests, shorelines along the beach or a lake, catacombs, attics, basements, cathedrals, schools, hospitals. The, the church that Jesus is building meets in all kinds of places in all kinds of settings. Some of those settings have stained glass. Some of those settings have a baptistry behind the pulpit. Some of those, it's a school. Some of those, it's a mall. For some, it's in a home. For some, it's in a storefront. I mean, Jesus' followers, when they gather together, wherever they have an opportunity to gather together, that is the church. And so Jesus predicted a people. He predicted a movement. He predicted this revolution a group of people who are united by faith. We may have nothing else in common, but we're united in faith that Jesus is Lord. Amen. That we have this love that, that we are so radical with, that we are so generous with, that we are so indiscriminate with. Jesus said, that's how my people are to be known because they are a people united by faith. There are people known of how they love one another and how they love others. And they have this message of hope. They're not naysayers. They're not haters. They believe against sometimes reason to believe that the best is yet to come. That no matter how dark it is, the light is going to dawn again. That even though there's death, there'll be resurrection. That we are a people who have a message of hope. And so when the church launched on the day of Pentecost, uh, the, the writer of Acts describes it this way and says, day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news because that's what the people of God, the church, that's what we've always been known for. This has been our best card to play. This is our best message. This is our only message. It is good news. And I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again. If the message that the church of Jesus Christ, if the message that we are loudest with, if it doesn't sound like good news to the people on the outside, we aren't telling it right, or we just don't understand it, but it was good news. And so the church started and, and what started off great and what started off like popcorn, you know, there was something that was underneath all of that. There was this growing animosity and this growing hatred towards Christians and towards the church. And, and so th this was about 33 AD, 34 AD, when the church launched out of Jerusalem. Uh, about a year later, the first persecution begins. Um, and, and when the persecution of the church began, the church left Jerusalem and went to Samaria and then to Judea and ultimately to the ends of the earth. But the persecution began in Acts chapter eight with the stoning of one of the deacons of the first church, a guy by the name of Stephen. And the guy who led the charge to kill Stephen because of his faith, because of his belief in Jesus was a guy by the name of Saul of Tarsus, a religious guy, a Jewish guy who was a zealot, who was a scholar. And, and so they killed Stephen and a persecution broke out because it's never been popular to be part of the church. It may have seemed popular for a season in this country. For some, the 1950s and the 1960s may seem like the golden era of Christianity in America. But let me tell you, it really wasn't. You say, how do you know that? Those were the good days. The reason we know they weren't such good days is because of the fruit they produced in the 60s and the 70s. So what looked so good on the outside and the seeds that we thought were being sown were so wonderful 
What hatched in the 60s and 70s didn't seem to be a great evidence of such a great thing in the 40s and the 50s, in the early part of the 60s. So it's never been popular to be part of the church. And if you're looking for America to think that it's great for you to be part of the church, I don't know if you're, gonna, if you're ever gonna see that day again or not. I don't know if that day's ever truly existed. I, I don't know if the world has ever truly celebrated the church. I don't think that it has because the darkness doesn't celebrate the light. The darkness loves the darkness because their deeds are evil. And when light shines in the darkness, it makes people uncomfortable. But there was a persecution that started. And so when there's growing animosity and growing tension towards the church and, and Christianity, we shouldn't be surprised by that. And we shouldn't, even, we shouldn't even resist that because we've always been at our best when we've been most disliked. We've been at our best when culture says, we don't have a place for you. We've been at our best when the leaders of the world said, we don't have a seat for you at our table. That's when we've been at our best. A year later after persecution, I told you about Saul, he got converted. So you never know what's gonna happen. Those that hate you next year, they may serve alongside of you. Those who are trying to malign you and insult you and destroy you today, a year from now, they may be your brother. I read something this week, or actually uh, Austin, our, our campus pastor in uh, Somerset, sent me something this week. And, and it was just this, this statement that said, the apostle Paul, the apostle Paul entered into heaven to the cheers of those he martyred. Well, that was better than any of you all responded. But anyway, that's okay. I, I, I set down my phone and I took a run. No, I really didn't, but I, I felt like it. It was amazing. That's grace. So Saul, who, who was killing Christians now, he is one. And I tell you this story because this is so important. It, it, it seemed like when persecution started, like, oh my gosh, this is, this is about to fizzle out. This, 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 this may be the end of it. I don't, I don't know how we can survive. I don't know how we're gonna pierce through on the other side of this. Fast forward just about 20 years, and in 57 AD, we know according to history, there was a Christian in Rome's senatorial class. In just 20 years, there's a senator in Rome who's a Christian. Now, he's not telling everybody about it, but he's a Christian. And so the church, Jesus is building it, and he's building it to last. When the book of Acts ends, it says for two whole years, Paul stayed there, he's arrested in Rome. He stays there in his own rented house. He's under house arrest and he welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And that's how the book of Acts ends. But the church continues to move forward. Just a couple of years later in 66 and 67, Peter and Paul are put to death. Uh, I, I got to take you know, our, our family, Shepherd and Grace, I wanted them to see that spot. Uh, Allison and I had seen it before, but, but the spot where, where the apostle Peter is believed to have been put to death for his faith and where Paul was believed to, put to be put to death for their faith. In 66 and 67, the two greatest leaders of the church, they died. And we all have a tendency to get attached to leaders. We all have a tendency to get attached to personalities and to people. And Paul and Peter were, were the heroes of the church but now they're dead. But Jesus was building the church to last. The church was bigger than Paul and the church was bigger than Peter. And so as the church gets to the end of the first century, uh, th there's a critical juncture that's going on in the church because by AD 90, by AD 90, about 60 or so years after Jesus died and was resurrected, Paul's dead, Peter's dead, all the other apostles are dead except for one and that was John. And John has been arrested by the emperor Diocletian. And Diocletian has placed him in a prison colony on the island of Patmos. And when John was there on the island of Patmos, the last living apostle there on that island, all of the first generation of leaders were essentially being removed from the church. And I am absolutely certain because we're human, I'm absolutely certain there was a group of people wondering, what are we gonna do when John's gone? What are we gonna do when all the original leaders, what are we gonna do in that first generation? What are we gonna do when they're gone? And so maybe as John was wrestling with that and other Christians were wrestling with that, God gives John a vision. And it was Jesus's way of saying, John, everything's gonna be okay. 
Because he gives John a vision of the end of the age when the Son of Man, the King, the Messiah, the Christ, when he gathers his people to himself and John says, after all of this I looked and there was before me a great multitude that no one could count. Every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hand. John saw a glimpse of the new world to come, the kingdom of God to come, and he saw a number which no one could number. And you know what? Somewhere in the mirage of all of those people was me. And somewhere in the mirage of all of those people were you. And there in the multitude that no one could count was a group of people of every race and every tribe and every kindred and every tongue. And it was Jesus' way of John saying, John, I'm building this thing to last. The church is not going anywhere. And so then at the end of Revelation, he gives a word to us all from Jesus. And this was Jesus's final words. He said, I'm, look, look, I'm coming soon. So the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. And this was Jesus's final words of, to the church, basically saying, I'm not done yet. So get to it and stay at it. I'm not done yet. So get to it and say it, I'm still building my church. There's gonna be a new day. There's gonna be a new generation of leaders. There's gonna be a new generation of Jesus followers. There's gonna be a new generation of the church, a group of people who believe that Jesus is King and Savior and Lord. I'm building my church and it's bigger than your generation, John. I'm building a church and it's bigger than that generation, John. No generation will stop the growth of my church because I'm building it to last. So you better get to it. There's seeds to be sown. There's a harvest to reap. There's light to shine. There's love to show. There's truth to speak. There's hope to give. There's grace to offer. So get to it and stay at it. And they did. Just a few years later, we know that plenty a governor for Rome wrote to the Trajan, to Trajan the emperor and said, there's Christians in every area of Roman life. Just a few years later in 150, the, one of the early church fathers, one of the, one of the apologists of the early church, uh, Justin Martyr said, there's no people, Greek, barbarian, any other race, whether they dwell in tents, wander about in covered wagons, sophisticated or not, developed or not, among whom prayers and thanksgivings are not offered in the name of the crucified Jesus to the Father and the creator of all things. In other words, you can't go into any city, any village, any ethnic people group, barbarian or not, where you will not find someone calling upon the name of Jesus. Amen. The church was penetrating every circle. By 200, Tertullian said, we are but of yesterday and yet we've already filled your cities. He's speaking to the Romans. We filled your cities, your islands, your camps, your palace, your senate and forum. We have left to you only your temples empty. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and I'm building it to last. And Nero, Domitian, Trajan, Marcus Aurelius, Septimius Severus, Decius, Diocletian, even though they all woke up at some point in their reign deciding that they were going to destroy the church, not a single one of them were able to succeed. And then Constantine came and made Christianity the legal religion of Rome, 410, the Goths took over Rome and Augustine who penned the city of God said, while earthly hopes, while earthly hopes are being shaken because it felt like the world was ending. It felt like it was the end of everything. It felt like this thing's about to end. This thing is fizzling out. The Goths, the barbarians, they're, they're at the gate. They've stormed the walls. And even though the earthly hopes of men are being shaken, the eternal promises of God's kingdom for the future remain certain. That was his way of saying, the future belongs to the church. Amen. So thousands of years of world history was upside, turned upside down. Compassion became a virtue. It was no longer a vice. Humans were seen as image bearers who were objects of God's love. Serving other people was seen as a means to significance and meaning and purpose. Forgiveness became thought of as freedom. That when you're forgiven by God, you're set free from sin. That when you forgive others who've done you wrong, you're set free from resentment or bitterness or revenge. 
in the church. They started adopting orphans. They extended healthcare by building hospitals. They championed education for both little boys and little girls, and they built schools. They championed the arts. They funded the sciences. And they turned the world upside down. The church is the reason the world changed once upon a time. It's the reason. It's history. It's a magnificent one. But what this series is all about is that the church is the hope of how the world can change again in our time. In this room, there in Somerset, Bell County, there in Williamsburg, all across in this room, in the room you're sitting in. Let me tell you what's in it, what the world needs. In this room is what the world needs. And what's in this room is the church. And we have light for those in darkness. We have truth for those who are trapped by lies. We have grace for those who've been crippled by guilt. We have freedom for those who have been enslaved. We have purpose to offer to the aimless, peace to offer to the anxious, joy to offer to the discouraged, hope to give to the downcast, and love for the unloved. We are the church. We're a family for the lonely. We have meaning for those who feel empty. We can give direction to those who feel lost. The change that the world needs is in this room. I'll end it here. Tim Keller wrote an article in The Atlantic a few years ago, and he said this. He said, there was no such thing as monasticism through which pagan Northern Europe was turned Christian until there was. There was no reformation until there was. There was no revival that turned Methodist and Baptist into culturally dominant forces in the Midwest and the Southeast United States until there was. There was no East African revival led primarily by African people that helped turn Africa from 9% Christian into a 50% Christian continent today until there was. Christianity, like its founder, I love this, does not go from strength to strength, but from death to resurrection. And what the world needs now more than anything else is the church. A world wounded by sin, deceived by the enemy needs the church more than ever. The rebellion that's going on all throughout culture, it's really just a misguided attempt to find God in all the wrong places. And Jesus showed up and he is the model for love, faith, hope, joy. He is the picture of what it looks like to live life to the full and we are his body. The church's best days are yet ahead. Do you know there's 44 million more Christians today in the world than there was a year ago? Do you know there's 2.6 billion Christians around the world today? That number is expected to be 3.3 billion by the year 2050. Do you know that the church is exploding in places like China? It's growing faster there than anywhere on earth. Do you know that it's growing ever faster in Africa, in the global South, in South America, in pockets of the world that we wake up and never think of? Jesus is building his church and he's building it to last. So don't get caught up in the bad headlines and the bad news because the church is built to last and its best days are yet ahead. And we are part of the church and we're gonna help make that happen. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd speak to us. I pray that you prepare our hearts, our minds, our spirits, our attitude for what we're gonna talk about all this month. We are the church. And we've got exactly what the world needs. We are the hope of the world. So God, don't let us take it for granted. Don't let us take it lightly. Don't let us just play church or have church. God, we wanna be the church. And we know that it matters and it's not in vain because you're building it to last. Give us that vision. Help us to make what's most important to you, most important to us. In Jesus' name. And everybody said.